This is a Piccolo podcast production. In this episode, we head to Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. At least, that's what the Mickey Mouse Club wants us all to believe. My name's Holly Mitchell, and this is Fairground Fuck Ups. Whether or not you buy into its mythical status, it's hard to deny that even amongst the grandeur of theme parks in general, Disneyland is unique. It's one of the few places that both children and adults all over the world feel is truly magical. It's a land where fantasy is brought to Technicolor life, where fun and adventure are a promise in the very air that you breathe, where boys and girls can make believe that they could be anything they imagine themselves to be. At the very least, where else are you likely to rub shoulders with a charismatic pirate, a superhero dressed as the American flag, a battalion of space Nazis, and find that the biggest thrill of all comes from encountering an anthropomorphic mouse? Disneyland may be the single greatest embodiment of the American dream. From humble beginnings came an artist who dreamt of telling stories that delight children and their parents alike. He travelled from middle America to Hollywood and there made movies that practically invented the concept of the family film. Not content with reinventing cinema, this entrepreneur built his own land of adventure, charged people a small fortune to spend a few hours there and was hailed as a genius, a visionary and a futurist. Flash forward to today and the company he founded and shepherded throughout his life has grown so immense that it is on track to owning literally all the media, which should serve the house of the mouse well in allowing them unlimited scope to advertise around the world the true foundation of their empire. That magnificent and grand piece of real estate in Anaheim, California, which very nearly went by the name Mickey Mouse Park. The genesis of Disney's very own amusement park predates its construction by years. Walt Disney paid a visit to Griffith Park in Los Angeles with his daughters Diane and Sharon. While watching them ride the merry-go-round, he began to daydream of a place where adults and their children could spend their days having fun together. When fans started to write letters to Disney to inquire about visiting the Walt Disney Studio, he realised that the studio itself actually had very little of interest to offer most visitors. The thought of an adjacent site to his Burbank studio began to take root, and Disney soon conceived of a dedicated tourist spot for his brand. As early as 1948, Disney was putting ideas on paper and recruiting others to develop this enterprise. As the team involved grew, so did the projected size of the park. With advice from the Stanford Research Institute, Disney authorised the purchase of 160 acres of orange groves and walnut trees. Here's Walt Disney himself talking about the inspiration behind Disneyland. Well, it came about when my daughters were very young and I, Saturday was always uh, Daddy's Day with the 
two daughters. So we'd start out and try to go someplace with, you know, different things. And I would take them to the merry-go-round, and I took them different places. And as I'd sit there while they, uh, they rode the merry-go-round, did all these things, sit on a bench, you know, eating peanuts, I felt that there should be something built, some kind of a, an amusement enterprise built where that the parents and the children could uh, have fun together. So that's how Disneyland started. Well, it took many years. It was a, a whole period of maybe 15 years developing. The, uh, I started with many ideas, threw them away, started all over again, and eventually it evolved into what you see today as Disneyland. But it all started from a daddy with two daughters wondering where he could take them, where he could have a little fun with them too. Raising capital by creating a new television show and then convincing the broadcasting network to partner in the endeavor, construction began on July 16, 1954. And on July 17, 1955, Disneyland opened its gates for the very first time. Here's Walt Disney speaking to a crowd of 28,000 people at the opening parade. To all who come to this happy place, welcome. Disneyland is your land. Here age relives fond memories of the past. And here you may savor the challenge and promise of the future. Disneyland is dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America, with the hope that it will be a source of joy and inspiration to all the world. Thank you. It was a momentous occasion, with everyone from Ronald Reagan to Frank Sinatra in attendance. The event was broadcast live on televisions across America, with some 90 million viewers. Here's one of the several members of the media who covered the electrifying experience. Standing here has been one of the most exciting moments of my life. I think, ladies and gentlemen, that anyone who's been here today will say, as the people did many years ago, when they were at the opening of the Eiffel Tower, I was there. I'm very proud to say I was at the opening of Disneyland. It's a fabulous thing to happen, ladies and gentlemen. That occasion, in and of itself, has developed its own mythology over the years. The problems that plagued that first day of operation could well be considered the original fairground fuck-up. Notably referenced in the film Jurassic Park, wherein the owner of the titular resort tries to rationalise the problems they experience by claiming, when they opened Disneyland in 1955, nothing worked. This is hyperbole at best. The problems were primarily related to an external plumbing problem that left the park with flushing toilets but no drinking fountains. You decide which you would prefer. An asphalt that was so fresh that high heels were sinking in. Of course, there were TV cameras capturing these embarrassing problems. Not necessarily the fault of anyone working for Disneyland. The drama of that day, however, is something that seems to have seeped into the atmosphere of the park itself and into the public perception of the park. Rumours and legends grow around Disneyland and become so entrenched that many people can easily accept them as fact. Take, for example, perhaps the most enduring legend of them all, that the park's creator, Walt Disney, has been cryogenically frozen and currently resides in an underground bunker at the site. A remarkable story, given that the details of his cremation and internment have been publicly available since 1966. And have you heard this one? 
The reason that no one has ever died at Disneyland is because park officials refused to allow doctors or medics to declare death on the premises. If someone is injured or has a heart attack, then they have to be moved out the front gate quickly in order to protect the pristine reputation of the happiest place on earth. Aside from the fact that no paramedic would cower to the insistence of an amusement park employee, the public record again shows that Disneyland has never shied away from accepting that sometimes terrible accidents occur. What's that? You've never heard of such terrible things happening at Disneyland? Brace yourself, because you're about to hear just some of the highlights of almost 70 years of Disney disaster. In May of 1964, 15-year-old Mark Maples unbuckled his seatbelt while riding the Matterhorn bobsleds. There's little to no record to attest as to why he felt the need to stand up as the ride approached the peak of the mountain track, but the end result was all too predictable. Maples lost his balance and was thrown from the sled to the track below, fracturing his skull and ribs and causing internal injuries. He died three days later. Two years later in June, Thomas Guy Cleveland made a risky attempt to sneak into Disneyland. The 19-year-old had climbed the park's 16-foot-tall outer fence, which gave him access to the monorail track. He obviously intended to walk the length of the track and then climb down once past the inner perimeter. Young Tom was spotted by a security guard who shouted a warning. The train was approaching. Cleveland attempted to climb down onto a fiberglass canopy that sat just below the track. But tragically, this did not offer enough clearance from the oncoming train. He was struck and dragged 40 feet. When emergency services arrived, he was pronounced dead at the scene. The following year in August, a young man named Ricky Lee Yammer was killed when he tried to jump from one car to another on the People Mover, a feature of Tomorrowland that was touted as a public transport system for the future. As the ride was passing through a tunnel, Yammer slipped and fell to the track where he was run over repeatedly by the wheels of the oncoming cars. In June 1973, Bogdan Delarue and his 10-year-old brother tried their hands at pioneering when they slipped away from their group on Tom Sawyer Island. Climbing over the fence that separated the cabin from the rest of the island, they managed to stay hidden until long past closing time. After a few hours, when the thrill of the adventure had subsided and they awoke to the drudgery of sitting alone on an island in the dark, they chose to swim across the rivers of America to make their way home. Unfortunately, Bogdan's younger brother couldn't swim, which left the older sibling attempting to make the journey carrying the boy on his back. About halfway across, Bogdan Delarose sank beneath the surface of the water and never came up. A ride operator spotted the younger Delarose dog paddling to stay afloat and managed to pull him to safety. Bogdan's body was recovered the next day. History repeated itself on the 7th of June, 1980, when Gerardo Gonzalez was killed on the People Mover, attempting the same stunt 
that cost Ricky Lee Yammer his life 13 years earlier. Climbing from car to car as the people mover entered the super speed tunnel, Gonzalez stumbled and fell onto the track, where he was crushed beneath the wheels of the oncoming train of cars. Another drowning in the rivers of America occurred on the 4th of June, 1983. Philip Strawn and a friend had spent their evening drinking in celebration of their graduation and Philip's 18th birthday. They had started to investigate restricted access areas when one of the pair spotted an inflatable rubber maintenance motorboat. Feeling that they were in the perfect state for a joyride, the duo ended up hitting a rock near Tom Sawyer Island and Strawn was thrown into the water. While the friend managed to make it back to the shore and cry out for help, Help it was too late for Philip. Some further evidence that accidents at Disneyland are stuck in some kind of tragic, demented time loop occurred on the 3rd of January 1984 when a 48-year-old woman named Regina Dolly Young was killed when she also inexplicably stood up while riding the Matterhorn. This time, however, the bobsled was already past the peak and on its downhill run. About two-thirds of the way down the mountain, Young was thrown from her seat into the path of an oncoming bobsled, her head and chest becoming pinned beneath its wheels. All of these incidents, tragic as they are, share one thing in common. They were directly attributable to the actions of those who lost their lives. No one would ever claim that they got what was coming to them, but it does go a long way to defending the reputation Disneyland had built as a park that was not only fun, but safe and responsible. A cynical person may see that this is where the self-serving myth that no one dies at Disneyland began. To have such a series of events in which there was not a single fault to be found with the park or its staff is nothing short of miraculous. Nevertheless, whatever magic pervades Disneyland, no amusement park makes it through 70 years with their hands completely unstained. On Christmas Eve 1998, the sailing ship Columbia had been secured to its dock on the rivers of America when the metal cleat or spike that the rope was wrapped around tore loose when the motion of the rocking boat pulled the line completely taut. Luan Fee Dawson and his wife, Lu Tui Fiong, were struck in the heads by the cleat as it flew through the air. Dawson's life support system was disconnected several days later. This was the first death in the history of the park that was directly linked to the deficiencies in maintenance and training. Determined that this would be the only such death, Disney supported calls for greater government oversight for theme parks and a complete review of their safety procedures. An admirable effort, but unfortunately, it's impossible to human-proof any complex system. Whether through laziness or neglect, new failures will always reveal themselves. In 2003, a 22-year-old man named Marcelo Torres was riding the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad when his passenger car suddenly disconnected from the locomotive in front. The two-person car and the engine collided, 
injuring several of the passengers and causing Torres to bleed to death after suffering blunt force trauma of the chest. Investigations revealed that the train had not been properly maintained or serviced. It's estimated that some 700 million people have gone through the turnstiles of Disneyland over the course of its near 70 years. The vast majority of those people went on to have the time of their lives. It is no small wonder, amongst such overwhelming crowds, that the stories of 10 or so individuals are largely missed. We can hear these stories though, and perhaps it is good to be reminded that the magic and wonder of Disneyland has its limits. Like any theme park, it may bring us to life, but it can't make us immortal. I'm your narrator, Holly Mitchell, and you've been listening to Fairground Fuckups. Head to the show notes for all the links to our social media pages.